fantasy-animation.org is a website with a difference. It is not for profit and it's run entirely by academics and professional animators. And this means that whether you are reading our latest blog or accessing our latest podcast, thanks for downloading by the way, you can be sure that you are getting the most up-to-date and informed commentary on the colliding worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Whether you are a budding animator yourself, a student of fantasy or animation, or just someone who wants to learn more about the history and theory behind these overlapping media, mediums and genres, why not find out more at fantasy-animation.org or subscribe to our various social media threads on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Reddit, at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. While you're at it, subscribe to the podcast, give us a star rating and better yet, a quick written review as well. It all helps to make the visibility of our project even stronger and attract more like-minded people like yourself to our growing network of fans. For now, do enjoy the show. again listeners and welcome back to another episode of the fantasy animation podcast i am alex Sargent, and i am chris holiday i always put a different emphasis on a different word mm-hmm. at that point in the introduction and i i decided it was am this week um yeah. th- this week we're talking um about a broader subject than perhaps normal rather than the specific film or television show we're going to talk about contemporary ukrainian animation chris um yeah. for perhaps yeah, yeah. obvious reasons given the very sad events playing out over the last couple of months i think um, a lot of people, myself included, have become very interested in the country that they perhaps didn't know a lot about and didn't know the history of or the culture of um, beforehand. So we thought this would be a lovely opportunity to to delve into what Ukrainian animation looks like, feels like, smells like, yeah. looks like... I've said looks like twice, but hey, a lot of it's the looking, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so um, <laughs> well, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah, Chris, anything you're particularly looking out for or excited to get into um, in terms of animation history and theory this week? Yes, well, I, I suppose similar to you, I wasn't sort of well as well versed in uh, in Ukrainian animation as I should be. Um, however, doing a little bit of a deep dive into a couple of the case study films that we're going to look at this week, I guess, um, really brought to the fore Ukrainians' relationship to contemporary computer animated filmmaking, and I've been sort of interested in the different industrial, well, national and industrial shifts starting in Hollywood and they're moving outwards in terms of studios that moved into computer animated film production, but equally studios that sort of came about through a particular synonymy with, with computer animated films. So yeah, um, I'm not going to give too much away in terms of what we actually looked at and, and, and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I'm really interested in, in this, this, three-dimensional computer animated film that maybe hybridizes a hollywood style aesthetic let's say with with um certain kinds of specificities that are um unique and particular to the ukraine yeah yeah i, I think that that note is similar for me i think the old and the new the the, mm. the the familiar with the not familiar we're in fairy tales um i've seen some dragons this week i've seen some quests i've seen some magic i've seen some wizards but yeah there's an askanceness or, or there's a a different take on these things i suspect because of some of the cultural issues um we're going to be talking about but thank god chris it's yes. not just us uh yeah. having to having to get through this together because what do we know uh we are very blessed on the podcast this week to be joined by Joshua First, who is a a Croft Associate Professor of History and International Studies at the University of Mississippi. Um, Josh specialises in the history of Russia and Ukraine during the 20th and 21st centuries, um, and he's published a number of books on this topic, including Ukrainian Cinema, Belonging and Identity During the Soviet Thaw, uh, and Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. Um, So, Josh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you guys so much. Really happy to be here and talking about these films. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for introducing us to, um, to them. Because yeah. They were a real delight to sort of get ourselves seated. I'm, I'm really looking forward to watching more after we've had this conversation. Um, but I guess to start things off and and, and, and assuming audience, uh, our listeners, I should say, are as ignorant about this topic as we are, which is always a terrible assumption in my uh, experience, but I'll <laughs> assume it anyway. Um, wh- where should we start with this? Could you give perhaps listeners a sense of of what, what to expect from Ukrainian animation? What does it... What 
what what kind of things are we talking about and 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 how's it been kind of developed over the last sort of maybe we can just go sort of 10 20 years and give us a sort of snapshot of of, of what it what the industry looks like in ukraine yeah i mean i i think the key here is that there are no expectations right i mean when we talk about ukrainian animation we're talking about only a handful of films at this point um and that's because um during the Soviet period, most Ukrainian animators didn't work in Ukraine. The main uh, animation studio in, uh, in the Soviet Union, which Ukraine was part of until 1991, was in Moscow. It was called Soyuz Multfilm. And uh, a, a lot of really important Ukrainian animators, in the sense that they were from Ukraine, um, <clears throat> left Ukraine. They went to Moscow. They, they were trained there, and they, and they continued to work there if they, if they were lucky, right? Well, then the Soviet Union collapses, and there's just no animation to speak of, except in Russia at that point. And it, so it takes a while for the Ukrainians to really start making their own films, uh, generating the capital that it takes to make these films. And, and also, I think what's equally important, generating an audience, because as with Ukrainian cinema more generally, you know, they've got this really big, powerful country to their east that wasn't always attacking them, that most of the time was selling them stuff like gas and oil and films. You know, most of the animated films that would have been in a language close to Ukrainian were Russian films. Um, of course, I think, you know, Ukrainians also were on a steady diet of Hollywood films, just like the rest of the world. But, you know, if there was something that was more, I guess, catered to their tastes or their their culture, it would have been a uh, Russian animated film or Russian cinema more generally. And so I think it's really remarkable that these two films even exist because they did have to raise a lot of money to produce them. And, and you know, you had to you had to find voice actors uh, I, th I think this is important for understanding these films as, as Ukrainian media products is, is the government uh, demanded that all films, even Russian films, be either subtitled or dubbed into Ukrainian. So that provided a lot of jobs for actually people like Zelensky uh, to become a, a voice actor in uh, before he became president, of course, sure. um, <laughs> uh, mm. to, uh, to, to sort of find work within, within this new kind of avenue. Of, of voice acting. So, so what sort of time period are we talking about here, Josh? Are we talking the last 10 years? We've seen a, a, an increase in Ukrainian um, animation as an industry. And, and if so, what kind of factors helped that? Was there any government intervention or is it just a case of entrepreneurial kind of pluck spirits, desire, all that kind of stuff? Mm, yeah, I, I think on, on one level, it's, it's government support, although I would put this more in the range of the last eight years, okay. uh, in particular, since the Maidan, since the Revolution of Dignity, as it's now called, um, when Russia annexed Crimea and, uh, you know, supported a separatist revolt in, in the Donbass. I think it's at that moment that the Ukrainian government really realizes that it has to get involved in culture, that it can't rely on importing these Russian cultural products, that it needs to define its own cultural agenda. Yeah. Um, and what happens is that projects get pitched to um, what's called Derskino or the State Film Institution. And Derskino has a limited amount of money and then they award uh, grants for filmmaking to um, you know, a select few films. And, and both of these films were actually awarded some of that grant money uh, that Derskino, which is under the, the Ukrainian Ministry of Culture, the, the money that they were giving out for for these projects. Okay, so um, so we're going to come to two films. Uh, we're going to watch two films today, and I'll put them in the show notes for people who want to check these out. Both of them are available on various streaming services, so they're not hard to access. Uh, we're watching a film called Dragon Spell uh, from 2017 and The Stolen Princess from 2018. And I should yeah. say, I've seen Dragon Spell, and Chris has seen... Um, stolen princess so we're gonna to have to compare notes um in just a minute yeah before we, we talk to sort of the two films and we go into sort of depth on, on on those and how they function can you just give us a little bit of a setup as to as to are, are these the only two feature films that have come out of ukraine so far or are they particularly good examples um and if they are what 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 um what do we need to know about them before we start looking at them 
Yeah, I don't think they're the only ones, but they're uh, they're the ones who've really got the most press. And, yeah. you know, especially with Stolen Princess, uh, it was made by an animation studio that looks very promising, uh, that has really committed to making making a lot of films on Ukrainian topics or with Ukrainian people. And this is maybe not the best example of them doing that, but we can talk about that later. And then uh, Dragon Spell, I think is on some level a primitive uh, animated film, but it's one of the first that really uses identifiable Ukrainian characters, right? It, the, the artistic style, um, the original story that it was based on, a ch children's story was, was written by a very um, popular, if not the most popular children's author in Ukraine today. Wow. And, and so I think it's significant in that respect rather than being a great work of, of, of film, <laughs> you know? Uh, but again, we can talk about that later, but these are, I think these are two very iconic examples of what's going on right now in Ukrainian cinema. There's a few other examples that we could have, you know, switched these out sure. for, but I think they're a good start. Yeah, I mean, I um, as Alex said, I watched the the latter of the two, and I was, um, I did a little bit of trying to contextualize these films, or certainly the the Stolen Princess, in relation to, I suppose the the the, the contemporary moment, and I found it was interesting that there are a few articles over the last month let's say six weeks or so which are using animation and using specifically ukrainian animation as a sort of i don't know part of a general sense of visibility and i've and i and i found a few articles that were and these are popular articles um in terms of what the invasion of um, ukraine means in relation to hey we can actually look at animation in different national filmmaking contexts. I'll read from one here. Animation is, is um, uh, always tangled up with culture, history and politics, both local and international. It's not just escapism. Animators have something to say in dark times and it matters. As Ukraine fights for its freedom, we're celebrating the country's huge contribution to animation and the Ukrainian animators who've overcome so much. So it seems really striking that that yes, we're doing this episode in a in a, a a period of let's say heightened conflict, and there's a timeliness or a topicality to it. But it's I thought it was interesting that animation was being used as as the key to unlock something around this sort of period. That actually animation is the wonderful world of animation is the thing that we can use as part of a broader national investment or um, national sense of recovery. And I just thought that was a really striking thing to, to halt to, for journalists and, and popular discourse to hold up as as something that is culturally impactful and and substantial and it's and it's, it's animation that's the thing that can actually tell us a lot about ukrainian national histories absolutely so to ask i get to ask impossible questions on this podcast you don't have to actually answer them josh but i'll ask them anyway so what does yep. the study of ukrainian animation maybe this is the final question before we get into the films themselves but what does the study of ukrainian animation at unlock about the country that it, that is worth unlocking because I guess from my perspective I yeah. you know I've only seen one of these movies but w I was struck by um yeah the kind of the sense of 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 a very you know interesting I don't know what the right word for is it tone or flavor of animate of of the imagination on screen you know this was a a very you know conventional story in many ways the one i watched yeah. but in other ways it had all these kind of little peculiarities and subtleties and nuances that felt you know from a from an outsider's perspective very distinctly ukrainian or very distinctly of a particular place and space so so what is it about the particular place and space that we're studying today that 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 can be seen through its animation or the animation it's produced so far yeah, I think that, first of all, we need to understand both of these films are fairy tales, right? Um, they're, they're part of a kind of folkloric understanding of, of who Ukrainians are, what their history is, vaguely speaking. Um, and I think in that respect, what Ukrainian animation is trying to do is to reclaim what has been generically understood as a kind of pan-European fairy tale or, you know, what had been understood as merely Russian 
mythology or the Russian fairy tale. It's trying to sort of dissect that and try to reclaim some of those stories and, and some of those spaces and some of those characters for its own. That's the most important thing that's, I think, going on with these films is that they not add, they don't so much add more national color so much as reclaim stories and characters and, and, and spaces. That's really interesting. And there's a whole history of that with fairy tales, right? That fairy tales speak to national national concerns or or at least are used often to speak for for national concerns, right back to the, sort of the Brothers Grimm and their involvement in the sort of Germ, Germ, uh, German unification um, union stuff. So it sounds it's really interesting that to, to kind of highlight Ukraine's role within a wider pan-European, but also, I guess, pan-Russian history um, or pan-Soviet history. But the way you claim a Ukrainian space is to highlight the role Ukraine has in telling stories that have been shared across both those continents. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is reclaiming a Russian imperial um, yeah. culture, right? I mean, you know, when you think about folklore, we think about, you know, uh, Vladimir Prop, who sort of defined mm. the nature of the Russian fairy tale. And what he, he was defining was East Slavic folklore, of which there are many different national examples of. I mean, he was, you know, more generally defining Slavic folklore. And so what the task of Ukrainian animation on some level is, is is trying to popularize the idea that there are unique characteristics inherent in each of them. That's really cool. That's really cool. Okay, so I guess we better get started then. So let's start with Dragon Spell, which as I said was a film that had a certain generic quality to it, but I think we'll we'll, we'll flesh out the, the nuances and flavors of it. I mean, I'll give my first impressions and I'd love to hear what I should have spotted, Josh, because I'm sure I only got the the, the, the kind of the skim the surface of it, but it was <laughs> it was an interesting movie. And I, I, we, we talked uh, before we started recording about its kind of slightly rustic quality. And I and I did notice while I was watching it, I, I happened to look at the comments section of, of um, um, well, actually, it was a review section. I watched it on a streaming service. I so never look at those things. But a lot of people were under the misunderstanding that they that the film was somehow sort of just made on some, uh, you know, low grade individual in their bedroom, and it wasn't actually of Ukrainian origin. That wasn't helped by the fact I could only get myself on on a dubbed copy rather than uh, uh, a Ukrainian language. Uh, we can talk about language in a minute. Actually, I suspect that's difficult to define as well. Um, but it's a nice it's a nice kind of quest narrative. It tells the story of a Tanner uh, who who's 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 um longs to to fight the dragons that were of of the past his father um was was a dragon kind of slayer or, or fighter and he now has to just worry about um tanning cows and and then he ends up going on this sort of magical quest into an alternative realm where the dragon spirit lives on in the kind of possessed body of a, of an ancient sorceress um he meets various people along the way including of course a talking bat um who also wishes to be a wizard uh, and the two of them kind of battle out in what i would call quite an, you know a mix between a kind of tolkien-esque kind of quest narrative and fairy tale structure into the woods and back again um and you know it all works out in the end shall we say um i really enjoyed the lo-fi nature of the animation i've never seen a, a cgi animation that has this kind of almost homemade quality to it and it's not homemade because it i'm sure it's not homemade but there's something about the kind of um the simplicity of the graphics on screen or the lack of um texture to the graphics that meant when when texture is used it's really quite arresting and the film uses depth in a really wonderfully kind of beautiful way it starts with this massive kind of tracking opening shot through the village and we get this sort of this this kind of whizzing effect um as it goes through the depth and as the dragon gets more involved in the story this becomes a really important part of it so so yeah i, I really liked it i thought it was um a sweet story with with some really nice magical touches embellishments i like the style of the film um, and I and I get the sense along the way there are some um, Ukrainian uh, flavors that I noted that I should notice. I detected something in the father son, actually the mother son father relationship that's felt slightly um, uh, culturally specific as well as the kind of dress and and style of the home before it escapes. So that's sort of where I what I got out of the film. But Josh, what what tell me about Dragon Dragon Spell? Well, I just to. Uh, follow up a few things yeah. about your comments yeah, about please the animation. Do. Uh, I, I felt like when we get these like close-ups of the dragon, for example, we get this beautiful texture. I mean, it almost it almost looks like um, you know how to train your dragon influence yeah. them on some level with these 
with some of these shots. And then, you know, when we get the establishing shots over the village, I mean, we, we get a, a, you know, kind of beauty there that I think is, is in my opinion, lacking in, in, the, in the kind of like action routines when people move through space. It, it kind of reminds me of a Nintendo uh, 64 video game uh-huh. or something like that, you know, where it's just these like these kind of clunky shapes move around uh, in an artificial way. Um, sure. But, you know, I, I appreciate your, you know, how that you like this kind of rustic style as, as well, you put it. it. It's probably a terrible comparison because everyone makes comparisons with Disney because they can't think of something better to say. But I'll, uh, because I can't think of something better to say, I'll make the comparison. It reminds me a little bit of watching like silly symphony shorts, like in the years leading up to say the release of Snow White, in that the style is not polished. Um, there's some clunky bits, movement in particular is quite repetitive mm-hmm. and things like that. But there is a there is a formal experimentation going on that's quite kind of pleasant to see in in, in and of itself. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms, yeah, in terms of what identifies this as as a Ukrainian space, I mean, yeah. First of all, you 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 get these houses with the thatch roof. I mean, this this is such an iconic home or hata as it, as it's called and also the um the embroidered shirt that what is it called in the english language version nikki um yes nikki, that, nikki, yeah, nikki yeah. yeah right in in the ukrainian original he's makita um okay. uh, but he becomes nikki in the uh in in the english language you know the embroidered shirt that he wears the mother is dressed in this very sort of like i mean she's almost this like mythical figure whenever she appears on 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 film she's got doesn't she have like braids in her hair yeah right the braids um and then the the shirt that she's wearing is very iconic for ukrainian folklore the kind of rushniki um the you know the embroidered style of shirt and again that that the style of the house i mean all of this is just very iconically ukrainian and and is very familiar to any ukrainian viewer now in terms of the language i thought it was interesting i read this that they shot the film with an english language script and only later uh, used Ukrainian dubbing actors, and and that's true for the Stolen Princess too. And I and yeah. I'm, I don't really yeah. know why they decided to do that, but that was that was surprising to me. Yeah, that was surprising to me because um, when I watched the Stolen Princess, I was trying to match. I also watched the dubbed version, but the the, the lip movements and the I could kind of match the dubbed language onto the to the lip movements, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. And then I again, yeah, looked a little bit around. Yeah, it was made in English and then dubbed into Ukrainian. So there's something really interesting going on around um, around voice work, and actually, I think that's part of the reason I really enjoyed the the Stolen Princess because it kind of plays a little bit with who owns the voice. There are a couple of sequences that play with, with um, seeing a character and then the different voice comes out of them. And I thought that was kind of, kind of quite playful, but um, yeah, I, 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 again, I didn't really know much about this sort of interesting way in which production language and voice are, are things that are in play with regards to these films. And, and again, it's something that maybe ooh, animation scholars, we should be paying kind of attention to these sorts of, specific narratives references visual influences but just the, the the way these films come to being in terms of their production and and the different sorts of industrial forces that shape the I, way I that they it's... look but also the the way that they sound sorry Alex, well no I, I was just going to ask a question about whether um what the reasons might be for that is it a commercial reason i can sort of imagine it might be but then it seems a bit counterintuitive to make a to, to kind of you know commission a movie with ukrainian public money to try and make a film of U- ukrainian um cultural legacy and make it in english but then is it a case of what what would you make it in instead i understand that obviously there's various languages spoke in ukraine right mm-hmm. so is is there a ukrainian language that would have been a more sort of obvious um second choice yeah i i think that 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 the only answer is that they're thinking of how to market this film abroad okay. that the if if the audience is only ukrainian then it, it's not going to be a very big audience. That said, I mean, we need to sure. remember that 40, 45 million people live in this country. Uh-huh. So I, I think the decision to make it in English is also a decision not to make it in Russian. Mm. When Ukrainians are thinking about their legacy, about you know reclaiming stories and, and, and images of, of, of people for, them, for their own national culture, they're, they're thinking about a kind of politics of recognition. They not only want 
their own people to recognize what is theirs, but they want the, wor the world to recognize that this is a Ukrainian story, that Kiev is a, is a Ukrainian space, that the Ukrainian village is populated by certain people in certain spaces. Um, and so it, it's, a, it's an outward facing politics of recognition, I think. And that, I, again, I don't have the exact answer, but that's, that's just me thinking off the cuff there, what, what this might be about. Yeah. I have, I suppose I have a couple of, of, of questions that are going to be long and convoluted, so strap in. But the first is about, I suppose, the way in which um, s critics and scholars treat films that may emerge or be produced against a historical backdrop of, of subjugation or occupation or marginalisation. The tendency to always assume an allegorical um, message in films in a way that we don't tend to think of every film in Hollywood being some sort of allegory about North America at the time. I guess my first question is: is in your in your work, and, and I guess within these animations as well, is there a, is is there a sort of almost a, a, an inevitability or a, a default tendency to read that kind of allegorical, interpretive, you know, thrust into into films to try and cr craft them around? Mm -hmm. a national narrative is that a sort of i don't know i just i just thought it was sort of interesting in terms of coming to these films no, knowing what they're about and where they're from and who made them and, and immediately trying to think through some of oh well that must be an analogy or a symbol of some kind of national um uh, trauma or something like that and so is yeah. this is that a fair is that is that a, a a fair assumption but also one that you mm -hmm kind of resist or challenge or move around? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think it's a question that I've been living with for so long. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> I struggle with this question because in the archival record that I was looking at, yeah. uh, the films that were coded as um, allegories of the nation were the ones that got the most attention at the studio that I looked at. Right. And were the ones with the filmmakers themselves and the screenwriters and the administrators and all these people were talking about the most. Then of course, people made, you know, just run of the mill detective stories or, you know, action, you know, war movies that happened to take place in what was the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic that have nothing to do with the national allegory. And those films, they may have been popular. People may have seen them, but they weren't coded as yeah. Ukrainian films, even if they were made in Ukraine with Ukrainian actors and so on and so forth. And so I think in that respect, it's just, it's just what we're paying attention to. And it's our prejudices that we're bringing into that story, but it's also the prejudices of the filmmakers themselves. Yeah. You know, the fact that this is a conscious politics of recognition. And I think that's at work in these films too. And, you know, with, and I already talked about the way that it was present in the dragon spell. It's a little less clear to me in the stolen princess, but we we can go into that when we when we confront that film directly. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. As as we sort of like bridge between the two, actually, a question. The final question I had was about if you know anything about it, is the cat is the studio that made it. So I don't know the studio that made Chris's movie. Um, Chris didn't make it. I should suggest <laughs> it's my the movie. movie that Chris 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 <laughs> was assigned to watch for this podcast. Um, but um, I noticed in the credits that is it Karen Karen Dash uh, Studios were largely involved in this one. Do we know anything about that studio or um, what it kind of was dealing with, or is this not something we've encountered? Um, I don't know anything about that studio. Uh, I, I couldn't find any evidence that they were making other feature films. I think they pro they primarily make, you know, uh, just you know, serials for for TV is is what okay. they've done. Other than this, uh, so they're they're less well funded than the. Animgrad um, studio that made Stolen Princess, which, you know, has a more intentional kind of, you know, manifesto, as it were, yeah. um, about what it's doing. So okay. my, my, um, my second long winded question is kind of about is, is about that sense of the Ukrainian animation industry within the computer animated film context because the computer animated film is this generically hollywood product there was a period i think after the first decade of the of the 21st century around yeah 2009 10 where there are a lot of articles around um, european studios uh, and studios that are sort of now turning to computer animated film productions um, yeah in the new york times from 2009 it was called animation upstarts are joining the fray and it was like 
lots of studios are now turning to computer animated films um and you have Spain, Germany, Argentina, Hungary, Japan, Brazil, Turkey, Holland, and India, and even Afghanistan hmm. are making computer animated films at this time, which is which is great and, and wonderful, and sort of destabilizes this yeah this this myth that um, um, North America is this standard bearer of, of computer animated film production. I just wondered, from what you know of Ukrainian animation, what where do they sit in terms of their move into computer animated films? Because it looks like Dragon Spell was the first full length. 3D computer animated film. So I was just sort of interested in trying to place them within a, in a lineage of technology and, and whether you could kind of speak to that, yeah, that potential yeah. narrative in, in some way. I, I mean, I think the answer to that question is there's not the need for it. And there's not the need for it is because, like I said at the beginning, they can import these really polished right. Russian animated films like Prince Vladimir. Uh, is a perfect example of the Russians kind of doing Disney. Uh, and right, right, right. The Stolen Princess, in many ways, is trying to reclaim the that period for Ukrainian cinema. You know, not not did not just let Russia do like ancient roots, right? To 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 provide a Ukrainian take on that, and and so I think that's why they're late to the game. They absolutely are late to the game. But the thing. The thing that drove it forward um, was were these like little cartoons on on Ukrainian uh, one plus one network, right? When you know in the two thousands, maybe even the twenty tens, um, there is a kind of need for additional programming for children, um, and and you know the sort of Ukrainian oligarch who owns one plus one, which is uh, Kolomoisky, also kind of the patron. Of, um, of Zelensky um, really had this project uh, and especially that that is the case after 2014 to provide more Ukrainian language programming for children right. on his on his network you know yeah yeah understanding of how a led to B but but again yeah. I mean why a didn't happen earlier is simply because of the presence of this large market to the east yeah no I was thinking that's the difference between yeah imported. Uh, at this period, you know, computer animated films in Hollywood, uh, uh, Hollywood. Well, computer animation is Hollywood's boom sector, but also that the sophistication in in sound recording equipment, technology, dubbing means that a lot of these films have yeah can, can traverse these national borders. But it's yeah, it's just it's really interesting that you have these two films that are released right at the start of what seems like a really healthy wave or or, or cycle of, of films that are. I mean, I really, really, really enjoyed the Stolen Princess. Mm-hmm. Like, I it was very much in my wheelhouse in terms of its its reflexivity, but also it felt really, really refreshing to see. I don't know to see a film doing something that I don't know. It feels like Hollywood computer animated films have got super, super generic, and this felt like it. It knew exactly what it was trying to do. It was very smart in its reflexivity about telling stories. Um, it kind of knew its audience. It was playing with the rewriting of history. And mm-hmm. and from what you were saying, all of that can be f- folded into a, yeah, a, a, a national, a kind of national narrative of reclamation. So yeah, I'm really excited to talk about could, the Stone Princess. Could you give, could you give me, give me a, a, a synopsis there, Chris, of it? Cause um, yes. uh, it sounds like, sounds like I've watched, I've watched the less good one, but I'm, uh, I liked mine. So I'm happy to fly <laughs> the dragon smell flag. But um, yeah, what, what, what happens in the, in the, in the Stolen Princess? Well, as you were describing the plot of, um, of your film, I thought they're quite similar. But I, but in a good way, right. you know. In a, in a, I can see Josh laughing, like, like in a good way. So, um, I mean, there's lots of magic metamorphosis and, and sorcery. In fact, I wrote down that exact sentence as my first note. Um, but it begins with a sort of short prologue. Um, Finn and Shenamore are these two sorcerers who have this duel. Um, it cuts to the present day, and you have a, a young character, um, Ruslan, who's a wonder. Uh, he's an actor who wants to be a knight, and he is relaying this this story of this myth that we've already seen, so we know is true. Um, uh, and essentially, it's about Ruslan, this performance um, artist, his playwright Lester, uh, and a quest, a series of quests that they end up going on in order to save this princess Mila. So think Princess Jasmine leaving the confines of the um, palace to experience the real world, damn it. Um, Mila then gets captured in a very Princess Jasmine, the, th- the streets are threatening kind of way. Mila gets captured after having a kind of quasi-romantic tryst with, um, with Ruslan. So you have your Aladdin figure and you have your Jasmine figure. Mila gets um, 
uh, captured and essentially taken to another world or another realm, if you like. Uh, and then Rustlin and Lester, this playwright who is providing him with these stories to, to perform. It turns out one of the stories that he is performing is not actually something that the playwright came up with. It's actually a real life series of events that we know because we've seen right at the start of the film. Right. Um, and basically they go on this, this series of micro quests that release or they, they finally discover Mila and, and not only bring her um, bring her back home, but they also um, solve the original narrative of this this myth that they've been told and this this guy's been performing. So um, yeah, it's that layering I loved. I I love a bit of that sort of stories within stories, um, bit, bit of time travel. There's a bit of sort of I suppose a, you get the anthropomorphic sidekicks. Of course you do. As you because I think you said bat with your one a talking. Yeah. So I get we get we get. I I did. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a squirrel. Oh, that's what, and the yeah. bat, the bat ends up married to the squirrel, or at least in a in a in a relationship with the squirrel. Sure. Um, in a in a nods to interspecies. Um, you know. Oh, you get that. Um, yeah, you get that kind of. You know, there's a bird, and there's this sort of strange uh, hamster type thing in the in the yeah. in the, the stolen princess. But I, mm. but I, yeah, I think the really what I really liked was this opening between these two sources, having this duel, cutting to an actor performing this story that he thinks is fake right. and, and fictional, but actually turns out to be true. And then the two stories basically collide at the very, very end. So, and what, and, and my favorite bit of the, of the film is that this playwright, and maybe this is something that, that Josh can speak to in terms of that idea of reclaiming is the playwright during the course of the film is writing down the events of the film because he wants this to be his next story or that he's like nah, he's taking ownership of this so he he writes down bits of dialogue or he he um is always seen with this this sort of pen and paper so it's a really interesting way of thinking about um the origin of, of myths and who gets to tell stories and that kind of stuff so the, the reflexive register of the film is is partly in service of this yeah. reclaiming of ukrainian ukrainian storytelling yeah absolutely i think you nailed it on the head chris and the only thing i have to add to that is are some specifics here to what, what i was thinking when i was watching yeah, um, yeah. i mean the the movie is based on a play by alexander pushkin who's who is the you know the russian national poet and he he did it was called ruslan iludmila uh the two main characters and it had none of this kind of the original play had none of this this kind of self-reflexivity uh, about it. it. It was a straight up tale of, okay, Prince Vladimir, you know, who, you know, is the Christianizer of the Rus, right? In Kiev, um, uh, celebrates this night, this bogatir, as it's called, as he's called in, in the Slavic tradition, by uh, who helped defeat these, these uh, marauding nomads who attack Kiev, the Pechenegs. And, he awards this, this courageous knight with the hand of his daughter. And, and they're about ready to get married and then the evil sorcerer appears abductors. And so Ruslan has to get Mila uh, back. That, that all is the same. But what I think is so interesting here is that they, they transform this knight into an actor. Um, yeah, yeah. This other guy is writing down the events, you know, as you said, yeah. reclaiming it not for Russia, but for Ukraine, you know, because he's a guy who's in Kiev, who's 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 um, telling the actual story as it is. I, I think that's just uh, what makes this uh, this this film a lot more sophisticated than than you might think on the surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's lots of. I mean, I tried to jot down a few lines in terms of that reflexivity. So you have um, Lester, the playwright, who says things. Ah, oh, that's so beautiful. I need to write it down. You have. Um, uh, Finn, who is the young, I guess he's part of the original, the, the Pushkin play. So he's the character at the very, very start who who gets, I guess, I don't want to say fr frozen, but he gets transplanted to this other world and aged. Um, and you think, I think the audience thinks that the opening prologue is is the story that's being told and it's within the, the chap's imagination, but actually it's the real historical events that the film will ultimately catch up to. But Finn says, um, uh, talks about real fairy tale grade magic. So they're very aware of fairy tale traditions and stories. Um, Mila says, no more Miss, uh, Miss Nice Princess. Um, there's a bit where they have to pretend to be killed by this, this magician, the sorcerer, Finn, who loses his power, pretends to, to kind of, I'm just doing a gesture of a wand now, but uh, to impart <laughs> magic on them. 
and he doesn't have any magic, but the characters kind of pretend that they are dead and fake the effects of it. So they're very aware of of these levels of performance. And you're right, the fact that he's an actor just allows them to play with pretense and performance and the fact that he wants to be a knight and ends up being a knight in the story that he told or acted earlier on in the film that he thinks is just a story but is actually a series of real events. So it's really convoluted and clever. Um, so I really... I mean, I'm, I'm just now wondering what Alex is thinking in terms of, man, I wish I'd seen this film. <laughs> no, I'm all right. I'm all right. I got a bat. I got a bat marrying a, uh, a squirrel at the end of mine. I'm fine. Sure. And the, sorry, I, Josh, I, I, thought, say, so. I thought the bat was a callback to uh, Anastasia in, in my mind, You know, even though the bat is a good guy in, in this one, but he's he's still a wizard bat, right? Yeah, um, I had thought of that. Yeah, he's quite Bartok. Isn't he? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. The other thing that struck me about... Um, about both of those films is I wonder whether they're um, in the way that you were describing um, the the other film I was thinking about the sort of post-Frozen syndrome, both, I suppose both the post-Shrek syndrome, i.e. I, the way to do fairy tales is to now do them reflexively like that's the way to do them, to be smart and to be self-conscious about the way that fairy tales create their meaning and, right. and also create emotion and press the audience's buttons there's that, and then you have the post-Frozen which is actually a little bit more sincere and a little bit more kind of quote-unquote traditional and I noticed a lot of the characters there was a bit of Aladdin in there in terms of the Sultan's relationship to Jasmine and and that is reflected in the King and Mila's relationship which is why Mila wants to go off and experience the real world walks onto these dangerous streets it's um, it's Rosalind that rescues her they begin this courtship they sing a whole new world and then she disappears um, so there's the Aladdin-ness of it um, but there was also a sense of frozen, I think, within it. The the way that um, you have Elsa and Anna kept inside the, the the kingdom of Arendelle. They don't really leave. They're trapped and they want to kind of go out and experience. And so normally you go, well, this film is just ripping off a bunch of Hollywood. But there, it, it did something. I don't know. It just it felt like it did something a little bit more more with those tropes, even though I felt it. I knew where it was going. And I just wonder whether that's where the the um, national at a national specificity, let's say, or the um, mixing of Hollywood animation tropes. So Mihaila Mihailov has written about Russian animation, talks about the mixing of animation tropes with recognizably national specific narratives, references and visual influence. And that's a sort of, we should do more about looking at non-Hollywood products in terms of their national, social, political and artistic landscape. And I thought this film did a really good job of borrowing from Hollywood tropes and Hollywood computer animated films as part of the marketability or the intended audience for these films to to make them, I don't know, attractive to, to, to child audiences, family audiences. But also it felt that it was doing it in a way that was that could really appeal to Ukrainian audiences rather than just pandering to a Hollywood model of what these films look like. Yeah, I, I would say you, you hit the nail on the head with Aladdin for sure. I mean, I yeah. when I was watching this, the first time like oh my god they they transform this this play or this 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 story into aladdin and fortunately they they sort of left that behind at some point but as for yeah. the frozenification of of an <laughs> oh i'm writing that down i'm writing that down frozenification <laughs> carry on <laughs> um that i you know i don't know if i see that quite as much and, and the reason why is 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 because I think that those themes were already present in Soviet renderings of, of right, um, right. Uh, these these fairy tales. This is the third time that Ruslan and Ludmila has been uh, adapted. The first time was in the 30s, right. and, and I can't say anything about that because I haven't seen it. But the second time was a really important time. This is 1972. Uh, it was a film made by Alexander Petushko, who started off as, as an animator. He's from Ukraine. He made all these like fairy tale films uh, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. His final film is the Pushkin play, um, 1972. It's a wonderful film. You should see it. And many of, of the themes that I think you're attributing to Frozen are, are present mm -hmm. in the Petushko 1972 film. Yeah. Um, and so when I, you know, it's a funny thing, because when I eventually saw Frozen, like, I was like, wow, they're, I feel like they were taking influence from 
from from Russia, from Russian cinema, yeah. from Russian animation, rather than the other way around. But again, maybe that's just my own no, Russo-centric view of the world, or Slavic-centric view of the world. That's not correct. No, I think it's. I think you're right. And also, you know, <laughs> if I if I know Disney at all, and I and I don't because no one really does. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like they don't have a history of of let's say adapting things in a playful yet quite politically disingenuous way. But um, I just, I suppose I, I was coming to it from a, you know, you have these two films and in terms of some of the character designs, I thought, oh, I wonder whether there's, I think it maybe is too simplified then to just say, oh, these are, these are a post frozen phenomenon where we're really seeing the importance of computer animated films as a, as a, as a mainstream form and, and frozen certainly reignites the fairy tale and the princess narrative, let's say of, of Disney, which, which has sort of waxed and waned certainly over the preceding 10 years. Um, so with Tangled and then Frozen, you see one of the rare instances of computer animated princess films, because generically speaking, computer animated films do something a little bit more modern and, and hip. And, and the princess narrative was re- the reserve of cell animation. There was a kind of ontological element to, to princess narratives. And it, it wasn't something the, the digital did Toy Story, whereas it didn't do it didn't do that kind of fairy tale narrative. So I guess I was coming to it from that perspective. But from what you're saying, it seems like Frozen... Owes a, owes a really strong debt to certain kinds of storytelling that was already in play that, that ultimately the, the Stolen Princess would then just pick up on later on. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I, I don't have any proof of that, but that's that's my claim. Frozenification is, is we're there. We're there with it. Let's go. <laughs> Can I ask about this, the studio that made this film? Um, you mentioned, Josh, when we were when I oh, yes. mentioned Karen Dash for, for Dragon Spell that you had a little bit more to say about uh, the Stolen Princess. It's a slightly more um, established, or at least more, I don't know, commercially. Um, it has more money to spend. So, could you just uh, give us the story on that? Animgrad um, is is the name of the studio here, and okay. their this was their first feature film, and they were supposed to release another feature film this year, but I'm I'm right. scared that it actually never came out. I, I actually have not seen. Um, seen evidence that it's out um, and there were trailers going back to January but I just have not have not seen the full version but it's called Mafka the forest song and it's based oh, yep. have you have you seen it Chris no I'm, I'm on the Animagrad website and you can filter some of the projects both I think live action they looks like they do some some non-animation stuff too or yeah. they do visual effects maybe for for not largely non-animated things but Mavka the forest song does have its own if you filter by 2022 you can watch the teaser trailer mm-hmm. but and it's it's got a running time mm-hmm. of 90 minutes but other than that yeah I don't know no. when it will see the light of day but it's yeah that's it's up there that's the scary thing about this is we're not going to be able to see this for a while I don't think but oh, this yeah. is based on a story of a sort of Ukrainian modernist rendering of Ukrainian folkloric material that is um again has been adapted many times but in this case it's only been adapted by Ukrainian filmmakers and so I think it's 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 a story and it's it's basis, it's literary basis. It's more clearly within the realm of, of Ukrainian uh, literary history. Um, and I think that that's going to be a real um, when we get to see it. I think it's going to be amazing. Okay, yeah. interesting. So you said you said these. It sounds like both their new film and um, Stolen Princess has taken a, a story that has been adapted a number of times mm-hmm. before, and it has readapted it. So I'm I'm curious as to what when you were stolen princess what is it is it the self-reflexivity that is unique about this version of the tale or what is it what are creative decisions can we um attribute to its you know an attempt to be a ukrainian telling of this story as opposed to what i understand would have been been made within the soviet system right mm-hmm. the previous retellings of it so is are there any other kind of things that stand out as oh okay you can see that they've they've altered this or they've returned certain things to how it was done in the original if an original even exists because it probably doesn't mm-hmm. but yeah um yeah i don't know if yeah i i think the most important thing here is uh the idea of kiev okay and and kiev doesn't really come out as such uh very much but it does take place in kiev uh the 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 czar or the grand prince is is uh vladimir the great um and i think that the standard narrative that you know Russian children still here in school and that Ukrainian children would have heard in school until rather recently is that 
Kievan Rus, you know, this kind of East Slavic medieval state led to Muscovy, which led to the Russian empire. So the standard narrative is that Kiev was Russian, right? And that's what Putin believes. And when the, when the Russian um, film industry made this movie called Vladimir Veliki uh, or Vladimir the Great a few years ago, well, it's about a decade ago at this point, it was the biggest animated film in, in Russian history. And it was about this Grand Prince of Kiev and how he was kind of the originator of Russian civilization. It's, it's, this is the grand story. This is the origin myth of Russia. So I think this, this uh, film that really is, is based on a Russian source that advances that same narrative of Kiev leads to Russia. Vladimir is the, is the origin myth of, of the Russian state or the Russian of Russian civilization. So it takes that and it domesticates it, right? It, it, it transforms it into a Ukrainian story. Um, I don't think that does that very like heavy handedly. I think it's easy to miss. No, and sure. I think that a lot of Ukrainian reviewers, uh, at least the ones that I read, were concerned that it should be more Ukrainian, that it's not, the film is not Ukrainian enough. Like Anamgrad, sorry, it's hard to say that the name of their studio, um, was supposed to hold all this promise for being, you know, this great, you know, Ukrainian animation studio. And they make something that's a little bit understated. In, in that, in those goals. And, but, but it's there, it's there for sure. It's just, yeah. maybe you have to search for it and you have to contextualize it to really understand it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. It sounds like we're back to similar things we've been talking about on the podcast already, which is that, you know, with scarcity comes this kind of overburdened or overdeterminist kind of desire for a single animation to somehow right the wrongs of or, or address a whole legacy of media representation and popular representation of of national cultures and things like that which no one film can ever do and it'd be it'd be lovely to see that film come out and many more um you know one, one can only hope um in times come so that so that you know two films don't have to represent um all of Ukrainian animation and, and and be Ukrainian in whatever earth that that means. Yeah, because uh, I suspect there's a tendency to do that. No, nor should we demand of it that, right? I mean, this is still a work of no, you know, artistic entertainment, right? Um, and it has to it has to pay the bills, right? It has to get it has to have an audience. It's not only Ukrainian who are aware and who are interested in in identity. It also has to capture an audience that is. Doesn't even know what Ukrainian. I know what you mean. The, the the burden placed on these these films to to act as some form of political or cultural activism. Um, <laughs> it's not that they are it's not that they are political or propagandists in the way that I think animation scholars have historically understood that term. Um, it just seems it's the, these films seem more in line with with what Malcolm would call that kind of useful. You know the ways in which animation works with deflects and dilutes, but also. Um, exaggerates and amplifies in the same way that caricature kind of works with the locus of truth and then does things and and, and uses the the possibilities of animation as this medium of representation to to kind of penetrate national narratives or to to kind of work through trauma and be spaces of catharsis and i just yeah i think there's a there's a there's the offshoot the the turn i think within animation is away from the political propagandist descriptor and more towards a broader understanding of of animation that is somehow useful because the usefulness allows us to think about ex production distribution and exhibition or when and where it's seen questions of of of, of censorship and, and stuff like that um so i think yeah there's I, I just as you were talking i was thinking about the burden placed on these individual films but also how we yeah. might understand them as yes ideologically charged but ideologically charged in a way that that shows they are they are in some way, I don't know, useful in the way that Malcolm would describe. And I guess that's that's also their use is that is that you know there's you know why we 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 were saying that there's there's government money flowing into both of these productions, right? So why would you do that? Well, it's 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 nice to contribute to a, a worldwide popular culture rather than have it kind of forced forced upon you, which sounds like the position that you know I mean a lot of countries um, uh, are are in, um, but particularly Ukraine where it's got you know American uh media coming in on one side right and 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 russian media from the other side it's 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 nice to kind of carve a space whereby you can watch a ukrainian animation on amazon prime um in its own kind of uh you know uh you know 
quiet victory. Um, that's good. <laughs> yeah, no, that's 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 right too. Is um, to create a mass culture that is not so determined by the national narrative. And this connects back to what um, I think you were asking me earlier, Alex, or maybe it was you, Chris, that, you know, what, you know, this kind of fourth, again, the burden of, of becoming a national film and a product of national cinema um, it is not necessarily on display here, uh, just to reiterate what we were talking about earlier. Well, I, look, I, our time is rapidly yeah. getting away from us, so I, I think I think we'll have to end our journey very soon um, through this snapshot of what's what, what the last sort of couple of decades, well, a couple of years, I should say, of, of Ukrainian cinema. Um, Josh, thanks for thanks for um, highlighting um, the films to watch, and I would recommend. Well, I I can't recommend the Stone and Princess because I haven't seen it, but um, it sounds like it's. I want to see it, and I shall watch <laughs> it after this episode. Yeah. I definitely would recommend uh, recommend Dragon Smell, uh, not just for the squirrel and the bat. There's lots of other good stuff going on in there at the same time um is there anything we haven't addressed um in our conversations that if people are interested in in ukrainian animation and and were inspired to watch some more stuff or, or to learn more what would you know what else what else is there to know in, in in the few minutes we have left with you um yeah i mean there's the impossible question right everything is left to know but is there are there any kind of you know hot button topics that we haven't talked about are there any other animations um I guess one of the things we haven't mentioned is artistic labor in that one of the key things also is that it sounds like um, in a in a situation not completely dissimilar from the UK situation in that it sounds like the history of Ukrainian animation or, or animators and uh, it can also be found in Soviet cinema and a lot of Ukrainian creative talent has worked in the Soviet context historically. Yeah. But one of the things these films do is that that keeps that talent in the country of, of, of origin. So are there any talented artists or, or animators we should be looking out for? Um, I, I don't have any names for you. I'm, I'm sorry, but I just want us to be aware that that Soviet practice of, of gathering animators in Moscow continues to this very day um, that, you know, if you find yourself as someone who's, who's a talented Ukrainian artist, you probably want to go to Moscow. And this invasion is probably, I think, almost inevitably changing that factor. But I think that's been mm. something that um, has, has been present at least until last month. Yeah. Maybe if there is a silver lining to this invasion, it's that it's going to keep Ukrainian animators and filmmakers in Ukraine. And, and maybe once all of this mess is cleaned up, well, first it has to be over, but once it's all cleaned up, um, you know, I expect to see a lot more in the future uh, with, you know, cultural products like films, like, like um, animated features and so on. Yeah. Well, that's a modestly optimistic note to yeah. end <laughs> what, what, what was a lovely um, thing to research and watch, but obviously within the context also is, 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 is more than bittersweet. Um, so uh, Josh, is there any, um, what, what are you working on right now? Have you got a book coming out soon? Have you got any articles um, uh, uh, open access people can access or can I just follow you on your Snapchat and, uh, and catch it that way? I'm not on Snapchat. I'm sorry. Snapchat. <laughs> oh, uh, Alex, the social media. I think I was reaching for TikTok, you know, and I just couldn't say it. So uh, I, I'm, I I'm not on TikTok either. Um, I can't even imagine what my TikToks would look like. But I don't know when this is going to come out because I'm working with some Ukrainian colleagues, but I'm, I'm working on uh, Ukrainian and Polish representations of the um, of the Carpathian Mountains in uh, visual art, not only cinema but also painting and and um, and, and sort of graphic arts um, like illustrations and stuff like that. So the people and the landscape of the Carpathians is is as a sort of national uh, project for both Poles and Ukrainians uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries. So um, I'm working on that, but again, you know, I'm working with some scholars in in Ukraine who, who have been uprooted. The other thing that I'm working on with a student of mine at Mississippi is a, um, a, uh, like a, an analysis of a bunch of uh, Russian propaganda films about Ukraine. And so the Russian image of Ukraine uh, since the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, uh, again, not animated stuff, but just really, you know, 
bad propaganda, you know, that, that has really, <laughs> I would argue, prep the Russian population to accept the war that's going on right now. So those are the two film related projects that I'm, I'm working on right now. Terrific. Terrific. Sounds yeah. great. Um, you know, for film fans of, of all shapes and sizes, that sounds really interesting. And I'm look forward to seeing what, if and how, for, what form they take um, when, when they're out. Um, but, but otherwise, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you guys. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fananim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. If you are interested in anything we've talked about today, but would like a little bit more context or development on it, bear in mind we won't have Josh to help fill us in next time. Um, by all means, suggest an episode for our upcoming footnote episodes. Ask a question, uh, send us a, qu uh, a comment, a query, and we will address it in 10 minutes or less. Uh, and you can do that at Fananim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research at gmail.com. Com. Give us a like, subscribe, do a review, um, and just enjoy the website. Um, it's free and available for you to access, fantasy-animation.org. This episode was produced by Leon Waldo. Otherwise, thanks very much, uh, and we'll see you next time. Bye.